0: I want to tell you about one of our partners, Quetzal Education Consulting. Quetzal Education Consulting is a queer, black, and indigenous women-owned firm offering anti-racist consulting, PD coaching, keynotes, workshops, and more. Their newly released abolitionist teaching workshop series coaches and prepares teachers to further develop abolitionist practices in the classroom. Find out why they have been called The Future of Educational Justice by Dr. Bettina Love. You can book a free consultation with Quetzal by calling 510-397-8011 or visiting QuetzalEC.com. That is Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L-E-C.com and if you mention you heard about them through Two Dope Teachers, you will receive a five percent discount on their abolitionist teaching pd series once again you can book them by visiting quetzalec.com on their connect with us page Um, here at the beginning of October. I can't believe that it's October. Super weird. Um happy the be- happy birthday to my mother a day later. Um celebrated 70 this weekend. Pretty dope, pretty wicked. And she's still a healthier person physically and mentally than I am. So there we go. Um <laughs> happy birthday, Ma. Um, wouldn't be here without you. My name is Gerardo Munoz and you are listening to Habitually Disruptive, where we take disruptive takes on um, the state of education and the world around us. We ask difficult questions. We question our own fundamental assumptions. My cat is really trying to hang out right now. Um, She can't believe I started a studio session without her because she is my studio cat. Uh, You will hear from her uh, probably at some point here, complain about something. But here on Habitually Disruptive, we do ask the hard questions. Um, It is I, Gerardo Muñoz, your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year. I am your critical conscience. I am your philosopher king. I bring you ill literacy, ill behavior, ill legitimacy, and ill-advised actions to make a better world for all of us Um, all at once, all at once. Um, if you are new to the feed, you can continue to get this podcast, habitually disruptive, under the Two Dope Teachers and a Mic podcast feed on Spotify, Apple, and other platforms. You are able to follow us on social media, Two Dope Teachers, um, at Two Dope Teachers on Instagram, Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok. Although we don't ever post on TikTok, and that may or may not change. Who knows. What it is that we do—it's um, part of Two Dope uh, Productions, which includes the Exit Interview and the flagship podcast, Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. Really excited about our guest that we have, and you may—those of you who don't know me, which is a lot of people—may um, not know that I have—I have a history with soccer that even is before the 10 years that I coached middle school boys and girls soccer which was some of the most fun teaching and learning that I ever did um I uh I get excited about people who are critiquing and finding new ways to create a great world in soccer um but before I talk about our guests I'll tell you a little bit about soccer and me um so I did grow up playing I started playing when I was probably in first grade or so and, um, and it was because my dad had started a soccer team for me, I wanted to play wanted to play with the with the white dudes at school. Um, but it was a really long distance to go. And it was really difficult for me to kind of, you know, for us to pay those fees and that kind of thing. So my dad started um, a team called the Janeros, which is just such a great team name, I have to use that for something if I ever coach again or something i don't know uh the Janeros were the first team in the curtis park soccer association which by the late 80s early 90s had grown to 10 different teams the youngest being the mayas um the uh the u6 uh kids and the oldest be or no the incas were the were the u6 kids and the oldest uh were us the Janeros, followed by the aztecas uh when i was a senior in high school um listen spoiler alert i wasn't very good um I was kind of a tentative kid who didn't want to get hit by the ball. Um, I started um, at center forward. I had no idea how to play that position um, at all. And mostly I was just that kid that went in the game and just wanted to be subbed out. Like, I'm not one of these people that was begging to be put in the game. I was definitely content sitting the bench and not taking any risks. Um, So... Eventually I had the opportunity, I think I was maybe 11, 10 or 11, to try out for Denver's first ever competitive boys team. There had been competitive soccer around the suburbs. Um, I remember playing against the Cherry Creek Lightning. I remember playing against the Aurora Sting. Um, We even traveled all the way to Colorado Springs to play the Black Forest Fire, um, where I believe I also received my first red card ever. (laughs) So me and Springs weren't meant to get along. Um, but I tried out. I made it. The team was called the Club Denver Warriors. Uh, the Club Denver Warriors would eventually become Denver Soccer Club, which would then become Fusion, which would then be purchased by the Colorado Rapids. So I was on that, uh, on that first team. I tried out. I made the team. And I uh, found a home as an outside back. I was actually really good at defense, which was... Which shouldn't have been very surprising. Like, my dad was a central defender who could just like own the back line. And so it shouldn't surprise me that I was able to play that position with some effectiveness. Um, once I graduated high school, I kind of walked away from the game. Playing for my dad all those years was sort of contentious and sort of difficult. And I don't know, man, maybe I'll write a book about this one day. Um, but I did walk away from the game and went to college, uh, kind of drifted back into intramural soccer. Um Mexico actually was suspended from the 94 World Cup so I didn't get to watch Mexico play. Uh and so um France 98 was the first one that um I actually watched and I attended some of um some of the venues not the games. I was in the cities but uh definitely in in Bordeaux, in Lyon, in Paris and places like that which was kind of cool. Um but I pretty much walked away from the game. Um my spouse and I met between World Cups. And so she had no idea that soccer had been such a big part of my life until the 2002 World Cup. So just uh, a quick historical context. We met in the fall of 98. That was after France 98. We started dating in fall of 99. We were married in 01. And then the World Cup happened in Japan and South Korea in um, 02. And so when we knew that the games were going to be on, at a really weird time. Like, you know, Mexico is, is slated to play Croatia at 2.30 in the morning. I remember her saying, listen, um, you know, I guess you, you know, we can still record the game. It's fine. And I looked at her. I was like, what do you mean record the game? That phrase doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so I was planning to get up. And weirdly, this is super weird. We've never actually talked about how significant this was. So she had an arrangement of dried flowers on the wall above the bed. And inexplicably, at like 2 o'clock in the morning, the thing fell on us. Freaked me the hell out. Like, it was the craziest stuff in the world. And then I realized, yo, we're up. Let's go ahead and watch this game. So we watched Mexico beat Croatia 1-0 on a wicked header by my man, Jared Borghetti, maybe the last good nine that the national team has had. Um, and she's like, that was fun, never doing that again. But that's just kind of how, how it it went, and I started to kind of get back into it. And I went to grad school for my master's degree, um, and then I started coaching middle school soccer, and it was such a healing journey. Um, my teams were really successful. My 2011 girls, shout out uh, Phoenix Girls 2011, um, for winning the city championship, uh, that year. That was really fun. And along the way, I started playing again after not playing with any consistency for 20 or more years. Soccer carries a lot of significance for me in a lot of ways. Um, I am starting to understand my own healing journey in life in similar ways that I understand what my healing journey in soccer was and I still have moments of insecurity um, and it's still it's a very difficult game for a person like me who try who wants to do everything right and do it well um, because soccer is a, a game that is fraught with mistakes there's just a lot to it um, so it's just kind of interesting to see how that's happened so in the early years of my of my coaching one of my players, um, ran in and he told me about this movie that was coming out that was being screened in town called Pelada, and it and I didn't get a chance to see it, but I made sure to to uh, stream it. And Pelada's is amazing. I absolutely fell in love with this film. It was about two former collegiate um, soccer players, D one players, Luke and Gwen, who had kind of reached the end of their playing careers and decided that what they were going to do was they're going to travel the world and find pickup they'd always play pickup together soccer was the center of their relationship and they were longing to find something real in the game now Gwen um was the youngest player ever to start a division one game um an accomplishment that she really downplays and says it was not as big a deal as it has been made. Um, But they went and they traveled to 25 countries over three years, gathered these stories, and made this film. And it just really resonated so deeply with me, watching people just play for the fun of it, watching people play, like regardless of whether they are gonna play pro, regardless of how quote-unquote meaningful the games were they just played because they love to play if you haven't seen it you need to see it it is so good and read the book as well well guess who my guest is my guest is Gwendolyn Oxenham who authored the book for the love of the game after her travels with her now husband Luke um to uh to make the film pelada um Aside from being a hellacious midfielder with just a great nose for the goal. And um, and just a great passion that she plays with, like she plays in a Bolivian prison with absolutely no obvious fear, and it was such a beautiful thing to watch in the film. Uh, Gwen received after uh, so Gwen received an MFA, Master of Fine Arts in creative writing from the University of Notre Dame, where she was awarded the Nicholas Sparks Coast- Postgraduate Fellowship. She's the author of Finding the Game, three years, twenty-five countries in the search for pickup soccer. And the co-director of Pelada, she also authored the book um, "Under the Lights and in the Dark," which was the which is the untold stories of women's soccer. Wonderful book, you've got to read it. Um, she's written for the Atlantic. Uh, She is the uh, co-director of the movie Pelada. She has written for The Atlantic, for Slate, and for Sports Illustrated. A Duke University alum, she played professionally for Santos FC in Brazil in 2005. She teaches English and plays pickup games in Southern California. Gwen Oxenham has really disrupted um, my thoughts and the thoughts of others around what sports are for. Um, In America, you know how it is, man. Why are you even playing a sport if you're not gonna get a D1 scholarship? Like, what's the point? I've heard so many people walk away from the game as youths and say, well, I'm not really going anywhere with it. So, and it just wasn't fun anymore. Gwen's writing and filmmaking in perspective remind us that this game has to be fun. It has to be fun and we need it and we need to have these experiences in the game. And as my daughter evaluates her relationship with the game, um, I, you know, look, spoiler, I want her to go back and play because I love to watch her play. She's so much fun. Um, but I know that it has to be her own healing journey just like it has been for me. Um... I was fortunate enough to reach out to Gwen, and after many, many attempts, we were able to make this interview happen. Um, her book, uh, Under the Lights and in the Dark, has been turned into a podcast series hosted by, narrated by, the great Hannah Waddingham, who you may remember from the television show um, Ted Lasso. You can also uh, read Gwen's books, and we'll post a link to her books on this podcast page. So um, please, please, please give a warm welcome to um, to one of my favorite disruptors, Gwendolyn Oxenham. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It is me, Gerardo Munoz, your 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year. Uh, someone told me I'm the forever 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year, and that makes me really happy. Um, I am here with a guest that we have been trying so hard to coordinate over, like, probably the last year. Would you say it's the last year or so? (laughs) It's been a long time. And I just have to say, like, I am incredibly humbled to have this individual um, on the show. And so um, I have to tell you uh, that when I contacted you about being on the show, I was kind of like, man, I would really love to get in a space with people who I just think are super dope, who I really respect. And so I'm just going to fire off a few emails. I think there were four emails that I sent or messages or something like that. And you were the first one to respond. And I lost my mind. It was amazing. (laughs) So folks, I want to introduce you to somebody that I hope you know about. If not, you're about to want to introduce you to Gwendolyn Oxenham. Gwen, thank you for being on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: All right. And, uh, you know, and is it okay if I call you Gwen? I feel like I did that. Yes, Just, of course. Okay, good. I don't like to rename people without their permission. <laughs> um, so this is habitually disruptive where we highlight stories of people who are working in their spaces to disrupt the status quo. Um, as we know, um, if we're not learning, we're not advancing, and we're not growing, and, you're about to hear a story of a person that I consider to be one of the most important disruptors just in my learning over the last 10 years at least and um, and I hope you get into this so um, so we will so hopefully you're able to get the lessons that I get about sometimes I think I'm just bringing people into my intricate world and I'm the only one that understands it and maybe the guest a little bit but hopefully it all works out um, we're gonna get right into the questions um, so, um, Gwen, you so- soccer was huge in your youth, all the way through college. Um, and so, tell me if I get this wrong: were you the youngest athlete ever to start a Division One I game?
1: I, I was. I was. That that sounds fancier than the reality of it, but I don't. Um, I,
0: don't I just don't know how that could be less fancy than it is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, um, I, I guess it makes me sound smart or something. But um, so I was. I was <laughs> I was 16. Um, but in part, that was because in California, they let you start school when you were four back in the day. So I was already young. Oh, I, then, um, I did skip my senior year of high school uh, to okay. go away, And so that made me extremely young. But I was so young, I didn't even know I was young, if that makes sense. Um, and, when you're, and when you're 16, it's like you have that cockiness that that you need to be great so I feel like I was better at 16 than I ever was again (laughs) Um, but uh, it was it was also my coach um, I have this incredible Trinidadian coach who used to train, um, dogs for the Trinidad police force. And then he oh, wow. <laughs> started driving us instead and uh, <laughs> he got us all scholarships to schools. We wouldn't have been able to afford and had us since we were, you know, seven years old and just coached us all the way through. And I, all, all my teammates were leaving. So he was like, you got to go this year. And I'm like, yes, I would love that. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. So. And, and you were, and you went to Duke. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was, it was going to a castle. It was, it was so fun. I'd gone to camp there and just fell yeah. in love with campus. and that I, the school was wonderful to me. I mean, it, yeah. they, they in ideas and that, uh, that's part of what created everything for me.
0: Yeah. And what you're going to, um, learn audience is that, um, is that Gwen is a person of ideas. And you know, as we talk about the film, as we talk about the books, as we talk about the podcast, um, you're going to see where a lot of these ideas kind of come. So then growing up, soccer was extremely important to you. Um, was it a game that you just you fell in love with immediately? Was it something that you were made to do like some kids? How did that kind of take shape in your, in your early life?
1: Um, no, it's interesting. I have two little boys now, and one of them, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> you're a natural. And the other one, I'm like, you're like me, not a natural. Um, but uh, I wasn't, I was awkward and, but I was always scrappy and I just loved it right away. And I think not being good is part of what made me love it so much. Um, mm. you know, there, there's a couple of big memories that, that stand out. Um, one was when I was 12, I tried out for the Florida Olympic development team. And, um, I had this t-shirt that said, If you don't practice, you don't deserve to dream. And I thought that, (laughs) you know, I
0: was
1: was very uh, um, pedantic like that a little bit back then. Um, (laughs) um, So, but I tried out for this team and I didn't make it. And the coach told me you're just too awkward for this level. And that was just like crushing, because I was like-
0: What a terrible thing to tell a 12 year old girl also.
1: Right? Well, I was like, like how do you Like she doesn't work already
0: feel awkward all the time. Exactly. Like that doesn't even, exactly. even matter. Wow. Wow. I and so I imagine that was just feel for the fire.
1: <laughs> exactly. I was like, no, no, this is the one place. I, I, I can't, I, this has to be my thing because everywhere else, I think you're right. I am awkward, but, but here, this is my spot, and um, I think that when you, um, I think the, a moment like that is almost better than making the team because it's where I mm. developed my conviction, and so then I became yeah. a psycho who practiced and trained, and you know, I, um, I that was not an easy time in my life, and so soccer was my relief, and yeah. I, I need it, and I think that's true for so many people. Um, I mean, sports yeah. is a relief.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and you don't build resiliency when everybody's always telling you yes, right? So you have to be able to take those L's and, and find a way to learn from them. Um, that's, that's cool. And so I I just have to comment on something. So repeatedly, I've heard you say that you weren't like a skit, like, you weren't this kind of like silky player. I think you said that in the movie, uh, in Pilada. And yet, and yet I'm like watching you like do these step over moves that are so like slick the way you like drag your feet and do this like has hez- this this little <laughs> sort of hezzy move and then like just a natural goal score like I think I think I think I disagree with you I think the scrappiness is definitely there like or it was at least in the in the clips that you share in the film. Um, but I just have to kind of, uh, I have to kind of push back on that because I think you would probably destroy me one v one. But I'm not that good, so don't don't uh, think that that matters.
1: <laughs> well, I, I do think I found some grace as I got older. Um, you know, that when you dribble, when you dribble around trash cans for 20 minutes every day, no matter how many <laughs> practices you've been to eventually you do get the, the skill and the smoothness. So um, yeah, I, I'm, okay. I'm pretty proud of my 1v1 game nowadays.
0: <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Excellent. Well, so um, what, one of the things that um, that really resonated with me about about your film, Pelada, and you can kind of take us through a little bit of that. Um, one of my beliefs about Disruptors is that you often begin as kind of masters of a system. Like you're knowledgeable, you're skilled, you're hardworking, you understand the ins and out of ins and outs of whatever the game is, whether it's an actual game, whether it's something else that you're doing. And then you kind of have this moment of clarity about kind of the system around you. What was it that sort of led you from playing at this really high level and you know doing that kind of work, working towards that? To actually finding, you know, the part of, of soccer that maybe is less glamorous on the surface, but probably exists in the everyday lives of more people than any other version of it. And did that lead to the film?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, the system threw me out. Um, I, I graduated from college. I was only 20 years old and there yeah. was no pro league to play in. So right. you're a soccer player your whole life and then suddenly you're not. Um, so I, the, the, the system that I knew so well was done with me, um, which was mm. turned out to be amazing. Um, I got a job as a deckhand on this boat in Mexico and it was this- <laughs> amazing. It was was great. And um, I mean, I had this romantic idea of what it was going to be like, you know, I was going to scrub decks, get a tan, um, but I I was the toilet
0: scrubber. Watch the sunset, watch the sunrise, like all that stuff.
1: (laughs) Yes, like very romantic idea of it. Um, And, you know, I wasn't terribly off, um, but I was the toilet scrubber. Um, and so I scrubbed Toilets a lot weren't
0: of- a part of the dream, right? Toilets no, weren't no, in that had dream.
1: Not, <laughs> no, had not in the dream. Um, but we were anchored off this island that served as an outpost for the Mexican Army. And Alfredo, this guy I worked with, um, he could see me like looking over there at the island um, because there was this makeshift soccer field with driftwood goalposts, oh, um, uh, and I was just—I—I I, it was my longest without playing, and I was in total withdrawal. I saw them, but then there were also these soldiers with machine guns and machetes. And Alfredo, he sees me, and he. He knows like he can tell what's going on in my head and he's like no that's where the bad soldiers get sent and i didn't care <laughs> I, uh, I i dinged over there and i made kicking gestures i couldn't speak a lick of spanish my boys my boys are in spanish immersion school so that oh, they well. will not like me. Um, and uh you know within 10 minutes i'm sharing this these wild goal celebrations, they're picking me up. It's monsoon rain. Um, At the end, like they're handing me their machine guns and I'm taking pictures holding their guns. And I mean, it was just, you know, and and I was blown away what soccer can do because I could play. Suddenly I got to know these guys in a way I never would have been able to. And it just, it creates intimacy between strangers. That's like what I say over and over because I believe it's just, Wherever um I this form of the game happens all over the world. Um just yeah informal pickup games, people playing because they love it and that's it. No other yeah. reason. They just love to play. Yeah. So that that was the that was an extreme moment of clarity where I was like, This, this is what I love. Wow. And um and it it never went away. And it was kind of like the part it hurt me almost. Like I'd think about it and I'd be like, Oh God, what if I actually did that? You know? And yeah, and and then we did. We um, raised as much money as we could, and went around looking for games. And it was the most extraordinary experience, and made you feel so incredible about the world. I mean, the people we met—whether it was Mon- um, uh, people brewing moonshine in Kenya, in or Kenya, yes, eighty-year-olds in Brazil who yeah. barefoot and just beat the hell out of each other—I mean, it was just. It was incredible to me i feel
0: like the the brazil segment is definitely my sunday league like we yell at each other we get frustrated with each other someone always gets hurt like you know it's like always like that and then of course there's third half um which is something i learned from the film the, the other thing too about Pilada, and folks if you have not seen like it doesn't even matter if you like soccer or not i think there's a certain Humanity that you and Luke really capture through how you connect with people, through how you just have people talk about the game, and but one of my favorite, most memorable pieces is actually when you were in Jerusalem, and when when the conflict kind of breaks out around whether a goal was scored or not, whether it counted or not, and you said something that really has just stuck with me about how you know, yeah, sometimes soccer brings people together and sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it just furthers divisions. And then you said, I don't have anything smart to say about this, but this is this is also part of the reality. I love that you didn't shy away from this sort of, um, this this kind of critical perspective, even on your own point of view, right? So it's your point of view that soccer brings people together, except sometimes, right?
1: Right, right. Well, it was important to us not to make, a film that acts like, oh, soccer heals all wounds. It's just too simple. It is complicated. And um, yeah, uh, (laughs) I still don't have anything intelligent to say about
0: the
1: fact that there are still divides that soccer can't can't necessarily leap over. But I will say that I am very maybe naive and optimistic that again and again, and I've been awed by what it can do um by the divisions yeah. it does dissolve
0: yeah there's a there's a quote and then we'll move on to the next question there's a quote I remember seeing that that said sport won't inherently make you a better person but it will make you more the person that you're already that you already are right so if mm-hmm. if the way you express yourself in sport is a manifestation of who you are then then if there are issues it's not with the game it may be with you or or your historical social political context that you're trying to do this thing because all those guys in that scene show up to play they just show up to play but but you can see where they're unable to escape the political reality and the historical reality that they all live in i just think that's that's so deep and i always think about that in my work teaching critical consciousness to um, to uh, teacher prep the students, I always kind of refer back to that. Like I like I literally cite your film when I'm talking about how you know there's it. Sometimes it's hard to get away from from history. So uh, just thank you for that. Um, so see, Pilada, read Finding the Game because what I loved about reading Finding the Game is that not all the stories in Finding the Game are in the film, and um, and there's this kind of reciprocal effect of having. Having the film and the book that I'll kind of talk a little bit um, about in the next part. So, um, two books that you've published at this point, right? Yeah, that's a, that's amazing. Um, I'll have you talk a little bit about the about how how you were able to marry writing and soccer. Um, but these two books, finding the game and uh, finding the game, and then under the lights and in the dark: untold stories of women's soccer. Are like super unique. So I guess is this, this is a two-parter. So how did you how did you bring soccer and writing together? Um, and as a wannabe writer, I'll probably be taking notes on this. And then um, and then what what is it that has drawn you over and over again to those lesser told stories? Um, and and how is that? I guess how has that evolved over time? Because I feel like the point of view that you express in the film and in the first book, I feel like that point of view has become increasingly nuanced and complex and, and even targeted, um, as we talk today.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, let's see. I mean, s- stories were always my thing. Like I loved stories as much as I loved playing and that was always the truth. And so, um, using soccer as a way inside of stories was sort of my game plan in that, um, mm. Always, because I could kick a ball, I got to go to a school I wouldn't have been able to go to, um, and it just that was like the first time the the game opened my world. But then when we made the movie, I was able to to do the same thing. Where I mean, and I I'll, I'll confess. I mean, my husband he's watching EPL at 6 a.m. every Saturday. <laughs> of course, yeah. he's like he, I don't I don't care as much about what happens. Yeah. Field. What I care about is everything off of the field, um, and so and that's always been my route. My uh, the path I take as a, a storyteller is like I just truly could care less about. I mean, even like the, the marvelous footwork or the incredible goal, like to me, a high, to some extent, a highlight looks like every other highlight, um, but it's,
0: especially it's, the higher up you go where everybody can do that stuff. Like part of why I love watching MLS is because everybody's always making a mistake and that's when it gets exciting is when, mistake. when the shit goes sideways <laughs> and like, and now everybody's scrambling. I'm like, this is, this is great theater. <laughs> but yeah, like you were saying, like they're, they're, especially at those high levels, it just, it does get kind of cumbersome. It's like, okay, we're just going to, Everything right. looks the same, and we're not impressed by it. I interrupted right. you. I'm sorry. Got really but excited. I didn't know that exactly.
1: <laughs> so to me, it's the characters. I care about who the people are, and I've been like that even since I was a kid watching NFL games with my dad, where I'm like, okay, well, well, tell me who overcame cancer and who mm. uh, you know came from somewhere difficult. Like I just, I've always, it's, it's, I love underdog stories. Um, and I cannot get enough of the story of someone being told. They can't. It's impossible, and then finding a way to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, and that's that's women's soccer. I mean, that's yeah,
0: hundred percent. Um,
1: it's 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 people who are playing because they love it, and they're going to find a way, even though the game sometimes turns its back on them. Yeah. Um, and so these stories um, of players all over the world. And, and I, I think because no one cares about women's soccer or, no, I, I think I should put that in the past tense. No one cared, cared about women's right. soccer. Um, that, that's where the, the stories began because in the shadows, away from the spotlight, um, that's where you find the best stories. I mean, that's where, when women fly to Russia, because it's the one place that will give yeah. them to play, even though the league's to cover-up for the mafia and, uh, coaching
0: is oppressive and yeah,
1: taking unimaginable risks, but that's what the lengths that, that women w- yeah. would go to, to play. And, um, you know, uh, so in, in the book, it's, Somebody like Fair Williams, who was homeless on the name yeah. of I
0: had no idea until I read for that six book.
1: Six years, six years of hiding her homelessness. Yeah, um, the two while-
0: stories too that just like really echo for me are there's the one of Nadia Nadim, which um I just think I mean I was I was just. Fascinated by her as a personality and everything that she had been through, and then uh, and the alley long story, like being like in this literal underground, like you know, pickup with these with these dudes, and she was like green and I, I just thought like, and it and it and it kind of to your point because I still watch when I can, but um, but I think I think I'm similar to that in that the the stories are really what compel me and. Like, just thinking about, like, when when I'd seen Ali Long play in a professional, like, uh, context, I I would always go back to that story. I'm like, yeah, but let me tell you, like, the book and all that kind of stuff. And all of the stories are like this. They're just amazing stories.
1: Oh, well, I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love, I mean, Nadia, I think, is the most impressive human on Earth. I mean, how you... Uh, her story blows my mind. Um, how you be? She's. I mean, she's going to be a plastic surgeon, or she's already a doctor. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Learning how to play at refugee camp. Uh, I mean, yeah. she's just extraordinary. And she interviewing her. It's like talking to a genius. I mean, that's what it feels like. Wow. Um, and ally long story. I think that's the story. I guess I most identify with. Like, I, mm. I um, of just these. I grew up playing pick up with guys and that was yeah. my bread and butter and so um it's even cooler than that though that these leagues in in new york with guys from all over the world and all of the different cultures and um you know and they're just so high high stakes cutthroat, with money on the oh, line no doubt. And being yeah. there was awesome it was so, so you got
0: to actually see some of these matches being played did you play
1: I was like six months pregnant. Um, oh, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, no, I didn't. But, oh, my God, I wanted to. And I still... It was
0: probably swear. killing you. It was probably killing you. <laughs> I, I, I do you know ending. if I
1: could have hung. I mean, uh, the level was so sure. Sure. so high, but I would have wanted sure. to try.
0: Sure. Yeah, no doubt. That reminds me of kind of the that that last part of the film in Iran and how, you know, and how everything kind of went there, that really tense moment um, and just like watching you, just itching the play and like, oh, play after play I have to play. But the, so the book is amazing. I've recommended it to all kinds of people, like checking it out. And then, you know, p- part of the reason that it was hard for us to connect and get this interview done is that you are big time, like big time. So like, under the um it's uh, sorry under the lights and in the dark has been turned into a podcast series called hustle rule and it's narrated by hannah Waddingham from ted lasso and i uh it's so great so well done how are you how are you feeling about taking these stories and i and i think it fits really well with what you said was like speaking in the past tense about how nobody cared about women's soccer and now you've got you've got the stories that you've collected and that you've, you know, amplified on this kind of bigger scale. How is that for you?
1: I mean, it's definitely a goosebump moment to, you know, write this collection of women's soccer stories and know that, you know, got a small audience and, and, uh, and then just watch it grow. And when you get, you know, your first email saying, Hey, we'd like to make this, into a series and I mean, um, it's Nike's production company, Um, their content creator, uh, Waffle Iron, and it's a division of Nike. And so having just this incredibly powerful force come in and say, we believe in these stories, we think they matter and we just want to bring them to a wider audience. Feels awesome. um Hannah Waddingham of Ted Lasso is a personal hero. Uh, she, she's as cool as you hoped she would wow, be. And wow. And hearing her, her voice is like butter. So hearing That's, her yeah. speak words that I've written and that did, you
0: wrote, that you literally yeah, wrote.
1: Hearing her say my name is pretty cool too because, yes. you know.
0: Well, she says oxenum. Oxenum. Exactly.
1: <laughs> My name has never sounded so good as as when she says it, and you know it, it's it's awesome. Um, it's still, I mean, a struggle to, I mean, to get people to know about the series, and it's still, I mean, I teach college classes and. They don't know that there's a woman pro, women's professional soccer league. Um, none of them. Um, and uh, and because I every semester I, I ask and then I you know make sure they know about these mm-hmm. these players. And um, granted, it's it's art school, so maybe that has something to do with it. But,
0: <laughs> maybe. <laughs>
1: um. It, still, it's just I I think that the the women in my stories. Are so unbelievably inspiring. From yeah. um, Josephine um in Nigeria, uh, you know when the scout knocked on her door of her one-room, yeah. home, like her father said, like leave or I will have you arrested. And and she said, I will die, Dad, if you don't let me play. And yeah. I mean that's the level of passion. And I I I, I think that they're important. And it, I I'm so grateful to have bigger player, people coming in to help shine light on these stories. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And another one that really struck me pretty deeply, especially now that we're kind of embroiled in these, I would say manufactured culture wars, right. Um, Is the one play away the gay. Um, And that really hit me deep because I feel like that story was kind of a bellwether for what was to come in terms of, these debates, I'm using air quotes, around the gender identity and the invisibility of our LGBTQIA plus students. And so I felt like that was really ahead of its time. Some of these stories are just really heart-wrenching. Um, and and I think they need to be, because I think our perspectives need to be disrupted about how the game always lives, you know, within the context of the world that, that we're living in. Um, I also really enjoy... How real you are about this work, and how real it kind of is to you. It still blows my mind that people don't um, know that professional women's soccer is a thing, and and it's been a it's been a really rough road, you know, um, having very little to do with the quality of play. Um, so I have to shout out my father uh, Leonardo Munoz, who um, when I was growing up, when I was you know in high school. Um, he told me that he believed that the five best players he saw in the history of soccer were Hugo Sanchez, Pelé, who he saw in person at the 1970 World Cup, um, Puskas, um, Ronaldo, the first Ronaldo, and Mia Hamm. And that piqued my curiosity and I was like, well, I want to know how she plays. And I think that's what really, I think it was my father, former professional soccer player who, you know, taught me the game. Um, Him identifying a woman soccer player as one of his top five impacted me a lot as a teenager. And I think that's where I really start. It's why my kid played. It's why I tried to amplify wherever I could. It was just that one really simple thing. So it blows my mind that people aren't aware of this, you know?
1: (sighs) That's, that's so awesome. Your dad was ahead of the times. Because I mean, even now there'll, there'll be bi- big books written about the best of all time and it's all men. And it's like, occasionally that, there was one just recently that that threw women in too. And I think that- <laughs>
0: Threw <added>. the men. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we need a it woman chapter. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> right. Me and him, um, I saw her play in a charity game. Uh, oh, oh, wow just for a minute. And, you know, this is 20 years past our prime and sure. still <laughs> nutmegging people and just, just so good. It's um, like another so that,
0: level. Yeah. Just like uh, another level. So, um, so we're going to start wrapping this up, but I guess a couple of questions I would ask you, um, you know, I think, I think you do have a critical mind and I think that you're really aware of a lot of just all these dynamics within the game and the things outside of it. Um, where, does, where does soccer in general and women's soccer in particular still need to grow? What are those other stories that you're hoping to unearth or chronicle or amplify? What stories are we maybe not hearing enough of these days?
1: I mean, I think we have entered a period of unprecedented hope uh, for so long. It was just the U.S. that cared mm-hmm. about women's soccer and now i mean euro
0: 2022 what a tournament I yeah
1: mean, they're selling out more tickets than the men's games are i mean they're yeah. setting records it's incredible yeah. um, and that's awesome and keeping that going um is so important to me um what we're beginning to see a shift in that i think is really important and that we still have work in um for so long uh women's sports were treating treated Um, as obligation like we really should support those women Mm. Um, and Portland Thorns I think were huge in changing that narrative where instead of we really should go to a Thorns game it was holy shit have you been to a Thorns game it was like so cool just it was hip it was the place to be great yeah Um, it was it there was no obligation it was like oh my god this is so cool and yeah. i think that is starting to happen um it's so, like angel city um yeah
0: now, you know, yeah i was just but, gonna say yep.
1: <laughs> it, it, i mean i took my boys to an angel city game uh two weeks ago and just it, it's it's you know so cool and electric and alive and um having that atmosphere and and so much of that comes from the supporters i mean it's the supporters groups that, that are making that, it's the drums, it's the people learning the chant um, and writing a chant and making, and making them up, up, right? Yeah, and, and that's so much unpaid time. Like you're doing that only because you care and um, not every community has, has as many people willing to do that. And so there are still NWSL teams where it doesn't feel that different than a high school game um, yeah. and and uh, but but more and more it's beginning to change and there are and it it takes it takes 10 people who who care and then it grows from there and so yeah. um and, and finding a way to silence these assholes on the internet <laughs> right
0: <laughs> I mean, that, oh my god I mean, yeah. The,
1: yeah the cyber hate and yeah. that comes from these anonymous names um I think it's I don't know I would think yeah. finding a I mean we
0: we, we know what it comes from right I mean it it is this kind of this and and I think I think women in sports really are just very triggering for a lot of these trolls right that sure. you know they they have a vested interest in not in not treating women's sports with any kind of dignity or respect, even though there's some really great games. And it's like, it's just like any other, you know, sort of sport in that way. But, you know, the Twitter is awful and beautiful. Um, I love Twitter, but I also, man, the trolls come out and I, I don't think it's any coincidence that 70% of Twitter users are men. Um, I mean, This is where you're going to kind of see that, but silencing them. I, I would love to see the networks make a real investment in, Uh, the women's game when you look at the camera angles that are used in the premier league versus what's used in an nwsl Mm -hmm. game it's like it's not the quality that's different it's what the networks are investing in the game um and interrogating that
1: and it it, it, and it is starting to change dramatically but it's still like there are games you can only get on twitch and yeah Tech challenged people like my. I mean, yeah. not being able to just turn on the television. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Watch that. Being said, like I have Paramount Plus now on. Got TV. to, got I, to. I, I, you got have to, to exactly and <laughs> and I, I do have access to games and um, it it's it is becoming more and more accessible. But but there are still you know ways to go. Yeah. And yeah, no doubt. And refere yeah.
0: has been an issue. Well, Oh, yeah. And that's a whole other thing. Right. But and I I would hate for that to become an excuse not to amplify the women's game, because what you can see people saying is like, well, you know, the networks and streaming service, it's just really hard. And uh, we have to recognize that those who are marginalized um, get hit harder by those changing conditions than those who are like, there's never going to be a problem um, accessing it. NFL games. There's never going to be a problem accessing EPL games. They're always going to be there. Um, one of the things that I'm hoping to see going forward in my last, so I, I, I coached for 10 years um, at the middle and high school I used to teach at. And one thing that I saw increase when I started coaching and I come from the Mexican American community. And so one thing I saw early on was that um, our families in the Mexican-American community were willing to pay a whole bunch of money for their sons to play, but wouldn't invest in their daughters. And then even when they did, these girls would end up in environments that were just foreign to them where they weren't understood and they weren't seen. By the time I started wrapping up my coaching career, I saw so many like Mexican girls born in the United States who are just killing it. I want to shout out Mariela, who was my leading scorer one year, 30 goals in 12 games. It was ridiculous. Um, I wanna shout out Amy, who is a freshman at the University of Denver and who was like the just quintessential central defender. who just knew what she was doing. She played like her Mexican dad um, and it was just super fun to watch. But that's something I'd love to see is how we're accessing some of this homegrown talent, um, particularly these girls in my community that we're not seeing enough of them advancing through the ranks.
1: Right. Well, so lots of thoughts on that. Um, I, I have gotten to play in 25 countries now, and I would say that the Mexican Americans where I grew up were, were probably the most resistant to me being there of any culture that I had encountered mm-hmm. except for yeah. Italy, Italy sure. too. Um, and, but, um, and I've always, it, you know, and I, when I would talk to fathers, it was like, oh no, that's not for my daughter. Um, yep. uh, and, I have been so just over the moon to see how much that has changed, where I I absolutely think in the last five or six, I mean, just recently, all of a sudden, there seems to be a huge cultural shift where, um, I mean, where my son plays, there is a team of um, Latino little girls who are out there, and and that just wasn't happening when I was growing. Up no. and the fathers are into it and supportive yeah. and just amazing. And then um, I also think um, I just did a piece uh, for Sports Illustrated on Naomi Gurma, um, an Ethiopian American. Um, hmm. And she said something that really stuck with me about how, um, you know, the first time a college coach reached out, she was like, what to me? And uh, she, she was like, I didn't know you could get a college scholarship. And wow. then she said, well, I guess, I guess I knew that happened, but I didn't know that it could happen for me, wow. and and that that makes me just wonder how many other kids out there are thinking uh, don't realize that we haven't shown um, what kind of opportunities that it can create. But but yeah. it, it does culturally, you know, in the Mexican league, the women's league. Have you heard about it? I mean, they're getting fifty thousand people out at games. It's no, just it's, so amazing.
0: Awesome. it's amazing. It's amazing, and just having roots in that country. I'm not from there. Um, but having roots in that country, that is such a shift. And so it's um it's pretty beautiful to see. And I'm hoping that it just continues because you know, these girls I used to coach, Mariela, Maya, Amy, like they're no joke. My daughter, I mean my daughter Tatiana, who the most creative player I've ever seen. I always told her she was my favorite, uh I would tell her when she had games, I'd be like, yo, I'm pumped. I get to see my favorite soccer player in the world <laughs> in person today. And she's like, okay, yeah, yeah, all right. But I know she appreciated it. Uh, wow. We had a, and we we'll, one more just quick thing, and then we'll get to your top five. Um, but we had a chance 10 years ago to go see a Seattle rain game. My sister lives in Seattle and it was when Hope Solo and Megan Rapino were both on the team. And um, Tatiana had gone as a Hope Solo fan and, you know, Hope, was she had her things going on and so we didn't really get a chance to meet her but Pino came and did selfies with everybody and Tatiana's whole soccer life changed in that moment we have a photo up that's framed with her with you know Pino making this goofy face and um and from that point on she refused to wear any number but 15 and um, we st- and she even got a nickname from one of her coaches as Baby Pino because she was just trying to emulate that playing style and, you know, that cheekiness and the outspokenness. And so it makes a really big impact, like just a small. and and I think yes. that's probably the lesson of, you know, especially your last book, and Hustle Rule, which is that it's not so much, it's not only that women are playing incredible soccer in the world. It's also, what they have have been forced to do to get to that elite level and to keep the game in their lives. Even even the woman in Brazil from the film who was working in the factory and was perfectly content playing her peladas, right? And like, the, just what it takes to keep them in the game. Um, I think that's probably the most resonant lesson from from your entire body of work is that, yes, these are really cool stories. It shouldn't be this hard. Yeah, <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I find it just really moving that no one is in it for fame or money. It's just so pure there that they love it. Um at the same time, like you said, there are there are times where it's way harder than than it should be. Um you know, but, but, and that's why there's yeah, stories. And it's it-
0: Okay. And as it turns out, um, in, in capitalism, money is helpful. So let's like pay our athletes, right? <laughs> well, cool. So we're going to get into this, uh, last segment, um, top five, anything. I hope you've had a chance to think about it. I'm going to share my top five and, um, and then you can kind of go through. So you're ready for the top five. This is, this is the most scrutinized part of the podcast.
1: Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Very I'm good. Right, totally All right. Ready. So
0: of course, because it's you, um, I had to list off my top five soccer books. Um, And I have read enough soccer books to have a top five and a top 10 and a top 15. So I'm not putting them in any order because I don't think you'll trust the order if I say what the order is, Um, but top five, um, obviously under the lights and in the dark, I think it's just such a beautiful and humanizing view of the game. It's a comprehensive view of the game. It's a game that is contextualized, in social, political, and cultural realities. And it's why I reached out to you. So it is in my top five. Amazing oh, book. You so much. Um, uh, the second one on the list is Feet of the Chameleon. Do you know this book?
1: No, I've never heard oh, of that.
0: It's so good. It's a history of African soccer. And, yeah. um, and so it's funny because like, for me, I have this paired text approach where it's like, Oh, this story in Feet of the Chameleon is kind of like, um, you know, Austin's field in Kenya. Right. And, um, and so it's really cool. But one, but the so I learned that's where I learned about the Algerian national team and their political sort of journey. Um, and it's where I forget where it is. I want to say it's in South Africa. Part of the fun of watching a pro game on TV in South Africa is watching the announcers compete, or maybe on the radio. And so they'll compete with ways to say. And and one of the unspoken rules is that you cannot use the same expression twice. And so they'll say, look at him. He has the feet of the chameleon. So I highly mm-hmm. recommend it. It's called feet of the chameleon. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, third book on the list is uh 31 Nil. I don't know if you know that book. 31 uh, Nil mm-hmm. is great. It's, it's similar to what you do with a little bit less. It's not, it, do, it doesn't have the same kind of focus and sort of like, this is, this is why I'm doing all of this, but it's more untold stories. And um One of the most beautiful stories in 31-0 is the one of Jaya Sailua, um, the American Samoa player who was the first trans player to play in a World Cup qualifier. Um, That was the game that Australia beat American Samoa 31-0, but people didn't know that there was this massive historical moment, um, first trans player, and actually my friend Sabrina is related to Jaya, trying to get Jaya on the show. Oh, wow. Oh, that would be cool. Um, so it's a great book, 31 mil, um, the beautiful game by Jonathan Pittman. Um, I read because as I listened to you talk, I realized how important stories are to me. Um, and this was a story of a very young woman coach taking over a, a kind of high status girls soccer team in San Jose, I think it was, and sort of her approach to it. And I kind of used that to sort of learn about coaching uh, myself. And then of course, um, it wouldn't be a list without "Soccer and Sun and Shadow" uh, by Eduardo Galeano. I just, I'm, I'm trying to read it in Spanish right now because it's like, oh. it, and it's beautiful in Spanish. But, um, but that book I, I think captures.
1: Oh, I love from that. I, there's a line.
0: Is it "Tell me who you are, and I'll tell you how you play"? <laughs>
1: That's it. That's it. I know, love Tell me that who book. you
0: are, and I'll tell you. Well, uh, you know, and there are so many others, um, but those are my top five. So. Would love to hear your top five. Anything may or may not be soccer related. Um, it's however you want to do it.
1: Okay. Well, so I thought about doing my top favorite five short stories and essays that I love to teach, but oh, nice. I really, but I had such one clear winner paper menagerie by Ken Liu, L-I-U. I just have to throw that out there. But yes. then I ended up not doing, um, doing okay. short stories during my um. My favorite Tiny Desk Concerts. Are you familiar with Tiny Desk Concerts? Yes.
0: Oh, this is great, yes. <laughs>
1: um, so yeah, and NPR does uh, Tiny Desk Concerts and it's a Tiny Desk and they bring in their favorites and I'm obsessed. Um, so I've got, got my top five. I'm, I'm gonna right. go with uh, Hades Town first. Um, it's the Broadway musical and they bring in, uh, it's, it's basically New Orleans in a musical. And I actually, oh, wow. Don't love musicals, but um, I keep waiting for them. The song to be done, so that, and they talk. I'm such a word person. Um, but this was an exception. Um, I actually just took my son. He he was he would listen to me listen to the Tiny Desk concert, and he got as obsessed um, as I. Was it am and so we just went, um, to, it's to the awesome. music, and it was Hades Town.
0: Oh, I it's love musicals, the best
1: music ever, <laughs> and it's so colorful. And there's so many ages, and voices, and faces, and colors, and it's just awesome. I'm
0: gonna find that. I'm yeah. on my Spotify looking for it right now. It, okay, um,
1: <laughs> and got, the tiny desk concert is especially good, and it's H A D E S Town, Hades Town. Yep,
0: got it. Um, all right, yeah. perfect. Um, Okay. And
1: then uh, Shaggy and Sting, uh, the Shaggy and Sting together. It was oh, just wow. like Sting, Sting? Sting, Sting. Like Sting. Yeah.
0: Like Sting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay.
1: So I guess Shaggy was a fan at Sting's show, and this collaboration grew out of it. And it wow. is joy on stage. And they, like amazing. 8 a.m., and they are having so much fun. Um, I actually have played it in the first moment of my class just to get the vibe right. Like it's that nice. vibe of like joy you're going for. Oh,
0: I love that, I love yeah. that. It's <laughs> um, funny because you know what's funny is that I listened to Tiny Desk and, and so far I've not actually come across these. Like I've missed these, oh, so okay. this is amazing, yeah. But
1: these are really good ones. Uh, yeah. And then um, Luce and the Yakuza, um, it's in French, it's kind of a little bit rap. Um, okay.
0: She um you say a little bit rock or a little bit rap?
1: Rap, rap. Okay, cool, Uh, cool. (laughs) Um she escaped. She she left uh the Congo during the war and grew up in Belgium. And uh it is just awesome. It's it's not like anything I'd ever heard before. I'm super into it. Okay. L-O-U-S. And, uh, the uh, yakuza Y-A-U-Z-A.
0: Y-A-K-U-Z-A. yeah um,
1: and then we've got the national that's my favorite band of all time probably oh, their, okay their lyrics are awesome i mean for example yeah. they have one line um i will walk into a room and i do not light it up fuck <laughs> um, and it's just like <laughs> They have really just unusual lyrics. Like, I used to be carried in the arms of cheerleaders. I wish I didn't sleep so late. It just, I love the lyrics. Yeah,
0: that's so, amazing. That's favorite a favorite
1: band is on there. Yeah. Um, Fifth is super hard. I've got lots of ties. Well, oh, um, I'm bad. Hank and the Bangas, Tosh Sultana, uh, Dermot Kennedy. I don't know. I, uh, there, there's so many, <laughs> yep. so many so um yeah, but I'm hard a huge to, hard to settle on concert.
0: one five, but there's <laughs>
1: yeah, there there's lots. Um ditch the, the the acoustics, the sound, whoever does the the mix, the mm. tiny desk concerts. I don't it's just it feels like it just flows right into you. So
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, that's uh I love it. I love it. I'm gonna have to go back and find some of these because some of them I remember coming across, but definitely not. Um the first two, so I'm gonna have to take a look at that the The tiny best concept is so fascinating to me and um and it's and it's been really cool like watching even watching it on video or just listening to it. It's really cool what what's the um oh, there was one that I saw, and then I immediately like downloaded all of their music um and for some reason, I'm blanking on them, but I will say it in the show notes, I guess um, <laughs> <laughs> uh Gwendolyn oxenpan, thank you for just taking this time with me today to appear on habitually disruptive um What's coming up next for you? What are you, um, what are you working on? How can people find your ideas?
1: Yeah, um, I've got a new book coming out uh, in time for Christmas. Um, it's a commemorative book of the, it's the first official U.S. soccer history book. Um, so it's incredible photos, it's beautiful. Um, and wow. then I wrote the essay for each generation. Oh, um, that's
0: amazing.
1: It, it, it's cool, it, just seeing them all together is awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I'm working on a novel that doesn't have the word soccer in it. Um,
0: it's <laughs> set in New Orleans. I, I lived That's in New awesome. Orleans
1: for a while and it had quite an impact on me. And uh, it's a brother sister story. So, yeah. We'll um, yeah, cool. whatever sees the light of day.
0: All right, folks. Well, hopefully, everybody um, will tune in to the Hustle Hope, or the, Hustle Hope uh, the Hustle Rule podcast. Sorry, Hustle Hope was something else. The Hustle World podcast. Um, read Gwenkong's books. See Pelada. It's it's just a movie that's so ageless at this point and in my life, anyway. And, um, you know, keep on disrupting y'all. So thank you for joining us today um, on another episode of Habitually Disruptive.
1: Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to speak with you.